Back some years ago, when I was involved more fully with women's ministries, we had a team from our church preparing to go on an international trip. And I took the leadership of these precious women very, very seriously. And at one of our preparatory meetings with all that was going on in the world at the time, I looked at those women around the table with me and I said, I want you to know I've cleared this with Nick and if we should run into any trouble, offer me up as the hostage. They can have me. Those women looked at me funny. None of them said anything. And we just went on about preparing for the trip. Well, the day finally came. We were up at PDX. We had hugged and kissed our loved ones goodbye, checked in bags and boxes, went through security, and we were out at the gate early. When one of those women who had had a blank stare during that meeting approached me and said, Susan, my husband and kids have a gift for you. And I said, okay. So when I opened the gift, it was this T-shirt. <laughs> A great big bullseye and those two words, designated hostage. That whole trip, I folded it like this so nobody in any creepy way would find it and come after me. <laughs> My team wanted any terrorist or any villain to know, take Susan. She said she's willing. So last night, we talked about God's willingness. The shepherd of our soul, the king of our hearts, he's willing to come into us and establish his reign. This morning, we enter into the question that has more to do with you and me. Are we willing? Do we trust God in such a way that we will let him have the throne of our hearts across the span of our lifetimes? Are we willing to declare him the king no matter what? He's unconditional toward us. But do we consciously or subconsciously have conditions toward him? Does he have to perform for us in a certain way? We're going to look in a little bit this morning at a space in the book of Jeremiah, God's people taken into captivity. And although the captivity impacts every bit of their physical lives. It's really their hearts at stake. Deep within, at the core of who these people are, would they allow God to have their hearts? The tribe of Judah, they're the chosen people. Messiah is going to come through their line. And they've been dragged far from home, cut off from anything familiar, held hostage in a strange place. If we're sloppy in our reading of the biblical text, we might be too quick to think this is when God napped. We might think this is the one people in all the course of human history that God abandoned. But neither of those things are true. We're about to look at a people in a very difficult spot. But God is not napping. 
God has not abandoned them. He's with them no matter what. But will they continue to allow him to be the king of their hearts no matter what? When we get into this text, if we're not careful, when we look at Jeremiah 29, we can think verse 11 is the first thing God said to them in this scary place. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. These words are true. God spoke them. But if we paint the picture that those are the first things God said to this people group in such a scary place, it might feel creepy or simplistic or patronizing to us. By the time we pick up with these people in Jeremiah 29, probably some of them are considering walking away from the God of their homeland. Maybe some of them are determining God's just not dependable. Maybe they've shouted at God. Maybe they've turned inward. Maybe their heads are spinning. Some of them are likely angry. Some of them are likely sad, heartbroken. And some of them are probably scrambling for more secure footing. Their beloved city of Jerusalem, by this time, would no longer be smoldering. Funerals have taken place for those who died in the siege. Wounds are bandaged. Scars are forming. The band-aids have come off. And God speaks to them through the prophet Jeremiah. But he didn't begin with verse 11. He began by gently walking them through what he planned for their journey the reality of what these people now face. And although thousands of them were taken into captivity, dragged from their homeland, I want us to walk a mile more personally in just one woman's sandals. I'll call her Jane Doe from the tribe of Judah. She was there the day Jerusalem fell, the only home she'd ever known. And she was among the prisoners who made the long forced march to Babylon. We want to hear God's message to her with empathy. And let's try to feel what she would have felt. Is there any way Jane Doe can keep God on the throne of her heart when she finds herself in such a difficult place? Let's back up now to verse 1. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This letter is to the survivors. Survivors who are far from home, dazed, confused, and hurting. Then we move on to verse 4. Got it right here. Okay, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 6. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. 
build homes and plan to stay, plant gardens and eat the food they produce, marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. God gives instruction to them that may have been hard to swallow. It may have seemed impossible to follow. Build homes. What? My mail is no longer going to go to Jerusalem? No, your mail is going to be coming to a P.O. box in Babylon. If Jane Doe will remain with her king in captivity... Even in this difficult place, he intends to give her some semblance of home. She wouldn't just have a prison cell, it would be a home. God tells her to stay, plan to stay, in this scary, unusual, foreign place. Don't spend all your energy trying to escape. Don't even spend all your energy looking for the signs of a rescue party. He told her, make plans to stay here. Prepare to stay. Get your calendar out for the foreseeable future and write, stay, stay, stay. Arrange life around being here. This place you would never have chosen, but now God wants her plans to include it. And he tells, tells his people, plant gardens and eat the food they produce. So there's going to be some semblance where they will still live with the seasons. Nothing from the biblical text tells us that it's going to be easy, that it would all come together quickly. There will be details, details, details. But God is casting a new vision for Jane Doe and her people. He tells them to marry and have children. Just because you're in Babylon now, don't put your life on hold. Don't keep waiting for someday, someday, someday to do the things you'd normally do. Imagine Jane Doe talking back saying, but for generations, the only weddings I've ever known were back in Jerusalem with all the splendors of religious life, with the baker who we all knew, the seamstress who worked on all the dresses. And God asks her to continue to carry on with life, even without those familiar things anymore. God tells them, find spouses for your kids so you may have many children and grandchildren. No, God, my children and grandchildren deserve better than this. She must have cried. Right about now, maybe she's getting ready to kick the king to the curb. And he says to her, multiply. He's going to begin to do something new. He's going to yield an increase from her in this strange and foreign place. Not just adding a thing or two, but it indicates some level of exponential increase is coming. Even when Jane Doe is in a strange place that was not, nor would it ever have been, of her choosing. God is not going to let her dwindle away. If she keeps him on the throne of her heart, new things are coming. 
And then verse 7. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Imagine Jane Doe's shock as she hears those words. Did God really say that? Pray for these creepy, despicable people. The very ones who've hurt her so deeply. God wants her to pray for them. These are new realities for Jane Doe and her people. How can this even be happening? If she's going to let God be the king of her heart, she will have to let God change her heart. Hear that again. If she's going to let God be the king of her heart, she'll have to let God change her heart. There will be adjustments that have to be made, things to relinquish, new ways of thinking, new ways of living, coming to trust God even when it seems hopeless, accepting that God is in control and she's not, giving up on the dreams that she used to have and waiting on the king of her heart to see if he can ever bring new dreams. Her king is asking her to start over. Not once she's out of captivity, but while she's still in captivity. Not after the dilemma is solved and neatly tied up with a bow, but while all of her life is still one big dilemma. Verse 8. This is what the Lord says. Don't have it? Okay. Jeremiah 29, 8. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they're telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. God wants her to listen for his voice, not to all the voices that are around her speaking lies. There might be interference in this hard place. There probably are some scoffers in this hard place. Fortune tellers galore. Imagine what some of the Babylonian ladies say to her when she's in the grocery store or sitting at her child's soccer or softball games. What kind of God would do this to you? He's not coming for you. How can you tell me the king of your heart is good, that he set you free, that he's going to restore you? Look at your situation, sister. You need to move on. Worship our God. Worship no God. But your God obviously stayed back in Jerusalem. He's obviously not here with you in Babylon. There will be noise for Jane Doe for sure. And she needs to take time. She needs to remember what she knows to be true about the king of her heart. God tells her he didn't send those messengers that are speaking those lies. And he wants her to listen carefully for his voice. He wants her to know he will still speak even when life is hard, when tragedy strikes. Lean your ear toward him. He's there. 
verse 10, this is what the Lord says. You'll be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. They are going to be there 70 years. That's pretty much a lifetime. If they're young, maybe they will live to return to Jerusalem. But if they're teenagers or adults, they're likely going to die there without resolution. With God, but without resolution from an earthly perspective. Can you feel Jane Doe's pain? God doesn't sugarcoat. He doesn't minimize. In fact, he confirms her worst nightmares. This is where you'll live out your days, in a place you would never have chosen to be, but in this place I have chosen for you. Reverberating throughout history, I feel like I can hear God asking Jane Doe, will you let me be the king of your heart, no matter what? Then and only then in this message to his beloved people do we come to verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Somehow, in a way she doesn't understand yet, God tells her that her future and her hope, they're not rooted in her ability to escape, but they're rooted in her willingness to walk with the king of her heart through the difficult situation that she is not able to fix. He is able, though, to carry her. She just needs to hang on. One of the greatest promises in scripture spoken by God, not when his people were going about their happy business back in Jerusalem, but after they would learn, they will spend their remaining days in this strange place they never would have chosen. Jane Doe's heart must be breaking as she realizes she'll never have the life she had hoped to have. And yet if she will listen in that very moment, God gives her hope, not in childhood dreams, but in a new reality that is based 100% on his ability, his proven track record, to keep his promise to her. The rest of Jane Doe's life just began. Will she keep the king on her heart no matter what? I want us to look back at her story and process through the lens that we believe God is capable of taking care of her in captivity. We're going to look at it and believe that it's possible for Jane Doe to live out her life in captivity while keeping the king of kings firmly enthroned on her heart. That she that it is possible that she can keep declaring him her king no matter what, not just in the good times, but also in the difficult times. I imagine that Jane Doe 
is going to have to stop, take a good long look in the mirror, even the profile, (laughs) and at some point, she's going to look in that mirror, and I believe she's going to say, that butt in the mirror is mine. I believe she is going to need to accept what's hers. And for most of us, that profile shot is not something we easily embrace. And I don't believe it's going to be easy for her. This is where she acknowledges that this new life and everything that it entails is hers. Will the king be the king of her heart even then? The first thing I believe she needs to do is to just work through a process of acceptance. She can't live in denial. She'll need to accept her situation for what it is. What I mean by that is she needs to realistically look at things and acknowledge, I'm not back home in Jerusalem. And according to what I'm hearing from God, those days are in the past. I'm not going to go back. And as she processes through loss, it's going to hurt. It can't be rushed. She'll need to accept that God brought her to this new place. And he wants her to stop trying to escape. As much as she wants to stay to herself in Babylon, she's going to have to learn how to relate with the new neighbors. I believe she's going to have to look around and hang a few pictures in her house. She's going to need to learn how to celebrate the birthdays and the weddings and the holidays without all the familiar trappings. She's going to have to accept that everything's different geographically, familially, culturally, financially, and religiously. She'll need to worship and serve God from the heart without as many of the religious props as she had been used to having. To walk through acceptance, she's going to likely have some relational changes with God. The new tragic situation has probably temporarily altered who she thinks he is. But as she leans in and refuses to dethrone him, she'll come to understand in time that her relationship with the king of her heart can handle this. In fact, the king of her heart is so big, she'll realize he's been there all along. Over time, she can learn that acceptance is not just all the losses. It's a whole new world that is going to unfold in front of her. A new world with a bigger God, a greater understanding of his heart, and a much grander vision. She's going to have new and deeper experiences with him. Remember, 70 years, it's her lifetime. She doesn't need to get it all figured out today. She can settle down because God asked her to, 
And as she begins to accept her new reality, the king of her heart will begin to be able to occupy more and more space in her inmost being. He'll begin to not only have her physical body in Babylon, but he's gonna have her whole heart right there with him in a good way. What started out as her being held against her will can turn into this time of growth, this time of relationship between God and Jane Doe like it's never been before. She may even begin to welcome the new things he's nudging her to do. Remember, God had told her and her people that he wanted them to multiply, that he would do a new thing. Imagine all the new things he can do in her heart now that she's with him and not fighting against him. As she continues in life with the king on the throne, she'll become more secure and begin to be able to acknowledge her sin. She'll begin to see where she's been holding resentment and lack of forgiveness, and she can come to this point in her life with God at his timing when he reveals it. And the second thing she can do in captivity is learn how to forgive. She'll have to beg God for his view on things. She might need to fight against every natural urge she has for retaliation. She'll need to come to terms with the fact that she's helpless and hopeless to do anything on her own. It will be a process, and it will be up to the king working in her to change her heart. Scripture doesn't tell us all the inner workings or all the different people she may need to forgive, but let's consider who some of them might be. The army that destroyed her city. The people now in charge in Babylon that God told her to pray for them. The new neighbors who know nothing and care nothing of where she's come from, they look at her every day without a clue of what she's been through. And if she's been ver married very long, it's probably safe to conclude she's going to need to forgive her husband for something. So we'll, <laughs> we'll put him on that list. And keep in mind, poor old John Doe has been going through his own journey in all of this too. Maybe her kids are just more resilient because they don't fully understand how it all works. And they're already out in the cul-de-sac playing soccer with the Babylonian kids. And if she doesn't let her kids be free, she's liable to take her anger and frustration out on them. This process of learning to forgive is usually no quicker than the process of acceptance. She might need a counselor's help. She might need a small group of friends in whom she can confide. But let's be sure about some things. To forgive the army or the neighbors or her husband or anyone doesn't mean that she's saying what they did is okay. It doesn't mean that what they did is not wrong. Does not mean that she's saying she's over it and it doesn't matter. She's just going to come to the point where in her relationship with the king of kings, she's going to give it into his hands. 
She will need to relinquish her right to control or manipulate or seek vengeance. And it will take time. It won't happen overnight. Perhaps that's why God has her there for a lifetime. He knows it will take time. But as she steps out in faith to begin to even ask God to help her want to forgive, she'll undoubtedly find that the King of Kings is delighted to let her cling to him and he will walk through, he will carry her through this process. Maybe she'll go two steps forward and then three steps back, but it's a guarantee that the king will be there if she allows. Who knows how old Jane Doe and her peers are by now? Who knows how long God had them in captivity before this began to unfold? But based on his character and based on the promise he gave, we can believe that there is this opening in Jane Doe's life. Spending out her days in a strange land, the whole apple cart has been upset, loss, hurt, and fears. But based on her king's ability and his alone, she can move toward a place of contentment. It might take months, it might take years, it might take decades. But this will be the moment that Jane Doe exhales, where her minute-by-minute minute life is bound up in her relationship with the king who is in her heart. As she reaches this place, only by God's timing, she'll be able to cling to his promise, to cling to him. She'll begin to realize that through some crazy inner work he's doing, she's wound up closer to him in Babylon than she ever was back in the tranquil life she had in Jerusalem. She alone knows what all has happened in her heart, the shock, the hurt, the devastation, the anger, the sadness, the acceptance, the forgiveness. Oh, wait! The king of her heart knows because it's where he lives. He's been there with her all along. And at some point, while she and her king are still in captivity while she's still waiting for the promised future and hope, it will be possible for her to wake up each new day, head into the day knowing that her kings got her, and maybe she'll even begin to look for some of that multiplication he talked about. Maybe she will lead such a transformed life among the Babylonians that some of them will trust in her God. It could happen. It can happen. I, I, I want to turn a corner now away from Jane Doe and I want to share with you a bit of my process with acceptance, forgiveness, and contentment. 
To be completely honest, I'm going to have to share things I'm not proud of. But most of all, the bottom line is, I do want you to know that I'm closer to the King of Kings than I've ever been. And it's because of a captivity of sorts he's chosen for me. When our boys, Daniel and Joshua, were about 12 or 18 months, we just really knew that they were not developing on a typical trajectory. I won't go into all the details, but what I can tell you is I will never, ever, as long as I live, forget the day that my blood ran cold like ice water because I just knew. I knew it was happening. They are wonderful boys, the apple of my eyes, and so it's good that I've got two eyes because there are two of them. But at age 12, neither of them has any words yet. Neither is fully potty trained. Neither one sleeps through the night. And from the time that our boys were about two until they were about ten, Nick and I were catapulted by a tornado-like force into a land that felt forgotten and forsaken. And my journey to accept was slow and painful. I think I was pretty quick to accept that God had chosen autism for Daniel and Joshua. So therefore, he chose it for Nick and Sarah and me as well. But what I couldn't accept was the concentric circles that came out from that. Maybe it's better to say, I would not accept. When Daniel and Joshua were about three or four, our family stopped being invited places. Some places we had been able to go, we were no longer able to go. At times, we'd receive patronizing comments. Our phone stopped ringing. And in the greatest crisis we had ever faced, we were more isolated than we'd ever been. During this time for Christmas one year, I bought Nick a plane ticket to go visit relatives because I realized he had not been in anyone's house but ours in over four years. Long about this time, I wound up alone in our house and I thought, I'm going to go into my bedroom closet and scream. And it, it would be a place where none of the neighbors could hear, nobody would know, it would just be me and scream therapy. So I went in there and I started screaming. And I just went off like a lunatic. And before I knew what was going on, I was screaming at God. And I, I'm not going to repeat it, but here's what I can tell you. The things I shouted at him th that day, I've heard NFL coaches are fined when they say them. <laughs> I'm not proud of this, but what I realized is... Ultimately, I shouted at him things that I had been bottling up 
for years. I shouted at the King of Kings, you have no idea what it's like to have your child rejected. Of course, that was the stupidest thing anyone could, I mean, I could have said 59 other things. That was the stupidest thing to accuse God of. He didn't say anything back. I knew I was wrong. I knew he was with me. And I knew he knew exactly what I was going through. The day in my closet with God was my claim the big blob as my own. It was my that butt in the mirror is mine moment. I had to begin moving forward in my life. Yes, there are those concentric circles that came out from autism and I somehow began accepting them. Yes, my boys are often misunderstood and I began to accept that. I began to realize in a very deep, palpable way that throughout history, there have been families who have experienced disability and God was just asking me to take my place in history with them. It, it was my calling. I began to realize that throughout the course of human history, there had been families who had experienced disability. And now God was asking me to take my place among them. It was my calling. On I went, concentric circle after concentric circle after concentric circle, genuinely beginning to accept my new reality. But here's a big thing that I learned the day I screamed at God in the closet. Autism and epilepsy are not in the center circle. The king of my heart is in the center circle. He was there when I recognized him. He was there when I didn't. My gutter level honesty with God that day opened a new doorway for me in relationship with him. And I'm learning that acceptance of my difficult situation includes accepting that he has never left me, he's never abandoned me, and he's never taken a nap. It's opened up a new place in my heart where he can have deeper, more meaningful residence in me. And as I've been able to accept that he's perfect and loving and good toward me always, when I realized how incredibly secure I was with him, I think that's when I could acknowledge my sin, my refusal to forgive. And I had a lot of forgiving to do. 
I had 20 sessions with a counselor across a course of months, and it was hard work. I found that a lack of forgiveness made me angry. Anger made me feel very falsely powerful, and that false sense of power was hindering me with God. But when I asked him to begin to teach me how to forgive, I just moved to great sadness. And the sadness made me feel weak. And weakness is his calling card. It drove me to him, to his embrace. I, I believe I've learned some things about forgiveness and um, I'll close my Bible because this is Susan talking. I think forgiveness is like a muscle and, and we get bulky, we beef up, we, we get buff when we exercise it, when we use that forgiveness muscle. I found that there's a motor memory of sorts to it emotionally. And it became a little bit more natural for me. I couldn't rush it. It's a process in my life, and it still is. So for several years, I practiced and practiced and begged his help. I couldn't do anything. It was up to him. And then about a year ago, one of the places one of my kids goes, for two days in a row, my child was accidentally overdosed on a med that they needed to take. Two days. The, the adult who was responsible misread the location of a decimal point. And so my child got 10 times that dose two days in a row. There was an ambulance ride, bit of time at the hospital, and when we brought my child home, we wound up with vomit in four rooms, and all of the rooms had carpet. During all of that, I had this overwhelming, Holy Spirit-induced power and peace and calm that flooded over me to forgive. The Lord took over my whole being in a life-threatening way where I had not allowed him to do so on many, many petty things before. It was the most mysterious spiritual thing I've ever experienced to offer forgiveness and to seek ongoing relationship with the people who grieved about the accident. None of us can forgive without the Holy Spirit inside us doing it to come out of us. And yet, again, my Bible's closed. This is me talking. I think somehow in the mystery, my work with the counselor and my recognizing that I needed help from God 
I believe it all worked together by his power somehow. Across the span of several years, I was being changed by the king who willingly wants to come in and sit on my heart. And when I began to allow him that ongoing work to deal with my sin, it opened up again a deeper level of relationship between me and him. I naturally would hold resentments, but he was working all of that in his time. And I believe all of this process is helping me kind of grow into my life. The life that my good and perfect king has chosen for me. There's an intimacy with him here that I never experienced there. If it weren't for captivity, if it weren't for my great, great need for him, I wouldn't know him nearly as well as I'm growing to know him. I'm living my same life. There are the same temptations to resent, but I've tasted more that he has to offer. The king of my heart is ushering me into places of contentment where previously there was sadness and resentment. I want him to be the king of my heart no matter what, but it'll be up to him while I'm still in captivity, not just after the rescue. It's an ongoing process and there's nothing quick about it. But a big picture thing about contentment that I'm experiencing, a great joy for me, a great joy, are the places and the people that I wind up with because of Daniel and Joshua. People and places and experiences that we'd no way have if it weren't chasing after Daniel and Joshua into those places. If it weren't for autism, I wouldn't have that. But remember, it's the king who brought me here. He's the one in the center circle. One quick glimpse of just a moment of contentment and then we'll close. Back in the spring, I clued into this Chris Tomlin song. It was called, Is He Worthy? I forwarded it to people, I preached it, and I was always singing it over and over and over, singing it. And in the song, it, it builds, is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? And then there's this climax where Tomlin sings, he is. And if I was in my kitchen with that song playing on the counter, I'd just throw my hands up and shout, he is. So one day, not long after that, and a piece of acceptance for me that I won't go into all the details, but we have six loads of laundry every day. And so one morning, after getting all of the wet, icky stuff, I was doing the daily drill of taking a Clorox wipe and wiping down the plastic mattress. And I'm just singing on my own, is he worthy, is he worthy, is he worthy of this? Not even thinking that I'm scrubbing a mattress for the four billionth time and I'll be doing it again tomorrow. 
And I'm singing, is he worthy, is he worthy? And I came to that crescendo and it was time for my hands to go up and my hands went up and I shouted, he is. And there was a Clorox wipe in my hand. He's worthy of anything. He's worthy of anything. We just need to cling. Several years ago, our family was down at Riverfront Park. And after we finished at the carousel, Nick and I split up, and I had two kids at the playground, and he took Josh down to the dock, because at that time, that was one of Joshua's favorite places. Joshua, whose strength is not cause and effect, didn't think about the fact that it was winter, that he was wearing a puffy coat, that the water was murky, that it was over his head, or that he didn't know how to swim. And without any warning, he jumped off the dock into the Willamette River. And with no choice and no time to think, Nick, who also was wearing a big puffy coat and whose head it was over and it was still murky and it was still cold, jumped in after him. And Nick grabbed Josh and Josh threw his arms around Nick and Nick began to scream, but there was just no one there. There, there was not going to be a rescue. Nick had to hang on to Joshua with one hand and Joshua had both hands around Nick and Nick had a hand on the dock and there was just no quick way out. It was too slimy. He couldn't get traction. So he and Joshua in their puffy coats in the freezing water had to slither all the way down the dock. Josh didn't have an ability to understand what was going on. But he knew to cling. He knew that everything about his survival depended on Nick. So Josh just hung on. <laughs> 